Iron Sports. We're uh, pleased to have famed baseball manager Bobby Valentine on the show. Bobby, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports here in West Palm Beach. Ira, good, good to be with you, and uh, hope your uh, life is going well. <laughs> Thank you so much. So, Bobby, about late 90s, I'm at a wedding in Stanford, Connecticut. I come down with a couple of my buddies and on a Saturday in between the wedding time, go to the bar, and Bobby V's bar, and one of my friends says to me, boy, we'll probably never see him here. Like, why would we ever come here? And you were standing right there. You turned right around and said, not only are you going to see me, I'm going to serve you your beer. So, I mean, I'm used to going to, like, Tiger Woods' place, never seen I've been to Tiger Woods 100 times, never saw him. But you work your bars. You have these famous bars all around the country, and it's amazing how you got into the sports uh, bar business. It's tremendous. I read, uh, those are fun days. Uh, you know, I did the uh, restaurant business for 38 years of my life. I had seven different locations at one time, and I enjoyed serving a beer, cleaning a table, everything but cleaning the bathrooms. But I did that, too, at times uh, during the early days. So one of the things I learned from the book is not only were you uh, a great baseball player, one of the best in the country, drafted fourth in a draft, but you were the star football player being recruited by Alabama, you met with Bear Bryant, Notre Dame, Eric Parsegan. You were at and USC. OJ Simpson gave you a tour. So you were this two-sport athlete, and you were a, the best ballroom dancer in the country at the same time in high school. So pretty amazing uh, high school years. Well, it sounds like you did read the book, Ira, and I appreciate that. Yeah, it, it was fun. You know, the 60s and 70s, uh, when I was a teenager and then into my 20s, uh, turned out to be uh, really fun times. And when I look back and think that I, I did have the opportunity to play football and baseball at the, a very high level at University of Southern California, and I was the number one draft choice of the Dodgers, and I got to the major leagues when I was 21. Oh, yeah, all that stuff is, is great to look back at, and um, I'm glad that uh, the book is is there to tell the story. It's called Valentine's Way by Bobby Valentine. I encourage anybody who is a fan of baseball, a fan of sports, a fan of just reading good stories because your whole life is full of good stories, meeting so many people. And one of them is you just you like a name dropper all over. You drop, you say, well, I was happened to be coached by Lou Lamarillo, who I'm like, hey, did you play hockey? No, in baseball. So Lou Lamarillo was your baseball coach. <laughs> Imagine a uh, hockey hall of famer in 1967, coming to a high school baseball game and seeing a kid from Stanford, Connecticut, run around the bases and hit the ball and meet his mom and dad after the game and say, hey, I'm 24 years old. I'm going to be coaching in the Cape Cod Baseball Summer League, and i like to have your high school junior come up and play for me. And, uh, yeah, you know, 60 years later, Lou uh, is still going strong, and he's still a friend, and uh, I still remember a great summer spent in, in Yarmouth, Cape Cod, playing against the likes of Thurman Munson and others. So you were discovered, well, how was it discovered by Tommy Lasorda? And you have a long, long life friendship with Tommy. And the, uh, the story I love is when you were in AAA, if you could tell this story about, and there was a mutiny on the team. You were a younger player. There were older players in the team on AAA. They didn't like you. And you'd say how Tommy diffused, quote, the situation. <laughs> well, younger uh, is, uh, I guess, the one way to put it. I was 19 years old, and the next youngest guy was 27. 
there were pitchers on the team who had been in the major leagues or had been toiling in the minor leagues for many years. And I was a shortstop making uh, at least an error a day and keeping them from getting wins, which would allow them to get to the major leagues. And after about a month and a half of making all of these errors and stinking it up at AAA, uh, the pitchers decided to tell Tommy Lasorda, who is a first-year AAA manager, not Tommy Lasorda, the Hall of Fame manager. He was the guy who did rookie league baseball um, for three years and then got promoted to AAA. And uh, he brought this young kid to play shortstop, and the pitchers didn't like it, and they told Tommy they didn't want to pitch when I was playing shortstop. So, yeah, Tommy decided to call a meeting he walked up and down. I thought it was the time for me to get out of AAA <laughs> A-ball where I probably belonged. And instead, Tommy said that he had an idea. He wanted all the players to get a pen and paper and stand in front of my locker and get my autograph because when I was uh, playing in the major leagues, they would be watching me on television. And um, lo and behold, he went into his office. I was sitting in my locker with my head down, wondering what I'm supposed to do next. And what I figured I had to do was sign 24 other autographs because everyone was standing in line with a paper and, and pen. And the rest of the story is that uh, I basically stopped making errors. Uh, I started hitting. By the time I was 20 the next year in AAA, I had led the league in seven categories, was the all-star shortstop, the MVP of the league. And, um, uh, Tommy showed what it what it was all about to have a manager put confidence in a young player and have him turn his uh, life around. And then you s suffered an injury. I think it was a knee injury, and you were lucky to be operated by it was a Curlin or Joe, but I forget which one who said operate on you, and that sort of st held you back a little bit. But you came back a hundred percent after that injury. But they were held back because Walter Austin and Tommy Lasorda had a sort of a feud in terms of you were Lasorda's person. You're the one that, that Lasorda was pushing, and Austin was fighting with Lasorda as the manager and didn't want Lasorda to take his job. Basically, that was the story. Yeah, Tommy was the uh, brash uh, manager who was saying uh, he could manage in the major leagues, and I was the brash shortstop who was saying I could play in the major leagues. And um, and kind of Walt Alston stood in the way of both of us for a while. Um, yeah, I got beamed at, uh, at the last day of the season. I was in the hospital with my head bandaged up for about seven days. Uh, I finally got back on the field, showed that I could play, and then uh, using all of my smarts that uh, <laughs> my good education in Stanford, Connecticut gave me, I decided in college to play intramural football for my fraternity and got clipped in the last day of the season. So I went to spring training instead of being the starting shortstop for the Dodgers after being the MVP in AAA. I was um, the starting right fielder with a big brace on my knee, wondering if uh, my mobility would ever return. And then they, you, you did get better, improved and everything, and then they traded you to the Angels. And at the Angels, you were going to be the starting shortstop there. You liked the situation. And then you suffered this. I mean, we talk about all these athletes, you know, can't miss. You were that can't miss athlete, the one that was going to have this Hall of Fame career. And, and unfortunately, you suffered a devastating injury. But it wasn't just the injury. It was the surgery afterwards that, that, uh, that sort of that, that, that 
had the effect, uh, the negative effect on your career. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, you know, when I look back at it, um, I'm here now in, in Southern California. I'm doing some pregame and postgame work for the L.A. Angels in 1973. I got traded from the Dodgers to the then California Angels. And, uh, yeah, I was leading the league in hitting, and uh, I was playing shortstop. And, and then the manager decided I should play center field for a couple days, and uh, Nolan Ryan threw his first no-hitter. And instead of changing the luck and, and putting me back at shortstop, I stayed at center field another day, wound up running into the wall, broke my leg. And uh, hey, it was a serious break. But the, um, the the big problem was, as you mentioned, as it was healing, it, it healed with an 18-degree bend in one direction and a 17-degree bend in another direction. Because the doctor decided uh, that it was better to be in Hawaii vacationing than to be watching over, um, yeah, his students. And that was not Dr. Frank Job, but Frank Job did the knee operation I had after playing football. And uh, the the Angels had another doctor at the time, and uh, he was good. He was just... Um, a little cavalier, I think, at uh, at the wrong time in my life, and uh, the leg decided to to bend while in the cast. And then you went becoming the superstar into sort of, as you said in your book, a bench warmer in terms of working the bench. But over the next number of years, when you were doing playing those and from going from so many different teams, the Angels, the Padres, the Mets, you were able to learn a lot. You were able to to pick, you know, talk about in terms of going from being this playing every day to being just watching the action on the, from the bench. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite the culture shock, if you will. The the culture of being the star to the culture of being the uh, also ran who would do anything to get into the game. Uh, I I hung on for another seven years and uh, wound up actually volunteering to catch a couple times in the major <laughs> league just to get into the ball game, and uh, <clears throat> was retired when I was twenty nine years old. I was. That means I was a free agent and no one signed me. And uh, then, a, then a new life began. And the new life was, of course, in managing. And, uh, you know, we, we think of you from the Mets days, but you had a, a long career for the eight years at the, at the Rangers. And you coached the Rangers when there was a lot of great players. I mean, Nolan Ryan, Ruben Sierra, Juan Gonzalez, Sammy Sosa. That must have been so much fun to be there in Texas with what's a great team that you played with, that you were managing. Yeah, 35 years old, a uh, teammate of mine became the general manager of the Rangers, Tom Greve, and uh, he brought me down to be his sidekick. I was his manager, and, uh, you know, we were playing in an old minor league stadium in the uh, football land of, of uh, Arlington, Texas, and uh, trying to build a franchise. And uh, in, our, in our efforts, we had a lot of great young players come through, Many of them developed into major league stars, not while they were playing for me, but after uh, they they got to sharpen their teeth uh, in the major leagues uh, with the uh, Texas Rangers. And, uh, you know, after Eddie Childs sold the team to a group led by George W. Bush, uh, I managed another few years and then um, was the was let go, was fired by a future president of the United States who is still a good friend of mine. 
and uh, went on to the next step. So when you were with the Rangers, you had a, a story about unannounced that Tom Landry, the famous coach of the Cowboys, walked in uh, to your office and, and gave you a, a piece of advice, which you, you brought up throughout the rest of the book. But I would share that, share that advice that Coach Landry shared with you. Well, it was my first year. I took over the team uh, halfway through the season, and uh, there were some articles in the paper on whether or not I would keep the coaches that I inherited or if I would bring in my own coaches. And uh, after telling me a few of the good restaurants in Dallas to eat at and telling me I was welcome to come to a Cowboy game anytime I wanted, he put on his hat and looked over his shoulder and said, and by the way, make sure that your coaches speak your language. And, um, you know, that doesn't mean that they were, uh, I needed to have yes, man. It just means it meant that uh, my message uh, needed to be heard in stereo and their coaches were the disciples who would be out there speaking the word. And um, uh, that was great advice. And then you go from the Rangers to Japan. I mean, your your life sh- should be a movie. I mean, you're a movie director. You've done movies and everything. But this is an amazing story. So you go over to Japan and you bring all those things that you've learned from baseball and sort of bring Americanize uh, the Japanese for one year. So that was it was pretty cool when you described about you know seeing Ichiro before Ichiro came to America. All those things. Yeah, you know, being the first uh, ever non. Uh, Japanese to manage in the professional leagues in Japan. And this is the 150th year of baseball in Japan, by the way. Uh, it was quite the honor. You know, I, I was the first ever and uh, I was sought out and went over and thought that I'd teach everybody uh, what to do and how to do it. And instead, it was a learning experience that um, I treasure to this day. And then you come back and coach the Mets, and and just that's where, of course, you're most famous for, and certainly in the New York area, um, and had great success. I mean, there's so many fun stories you have. I, I would like you to say about how the whole disguise game, when you got thrown out of a game and there was some idea. I, I didn't realize who gave you the idea until I read the book about the disguise, but maybe tell our listeners about that, that because it was it's a very funny story. Well, it turned out to be funny uh, at this time. At, at, the, at that time, it was quite uh, uh, the scandal, if you will. Yeah, I got thrown out of the game. Mike Piazza got called for a catcher's balk and extra innings of a game being played uh, at a very crucial time in 1999 after I had taken over the team in 96 and uh, we built it into a very competitive uh, championship type team and we were in a losing streak and then my coaches got fired and then <clears throat> Three days after, um, we were playing an extra innings, and uh, I called the pitch out. Mike stepped out to catch the ball, throw it to second base. The umpire called timeout and called the catcher's balk on the play. I never heard the play being called before and didn't think it was a very good idea. And I asked the the umpire if I could get thrown out for what I was thinking, and he said no. And then I told him what I was thinking, and I got thrown out. (laughs) The next thing I knew, I was in the uh, clubhouse, uh, and my star pitcher at the time, a uh, 40-year-old Oral Hershiser, came up and said, uh, you know, we have a lot of new coaches in the dugout. They don't really know what to do. You better get back down there and help them out. And I said, I can't do that. I got thrown out of the game. They'll throw me out of baseball if I ever go back to the dugout. 
And so the next thing I knew, I had a pair of sunglasses. I had a hat. I was wearing a T-shirt. I looked in the mirror in the in the training room and then realized that I needed a little more. So I took the stickers off of the uh, for the stickers that were on the training room table. And those are the things you put underneath your eyes when the sun is too bright. And I took one of the stickers and put it under my no- nose on the right side and took the other one, put it above my lip on the left side and looked in the mirror and looked like a mustache. I looked at Oral. He said, they'll never know. <laughs> and I went out to the dugout and about three minutes later, everyone knew. And uh, it became quite the... Uh, the interesting scandal, and hey, if you read the book, there's a there's a backstory to the whole story. In that, um, I was on the hot seat, and uh, and I was uh, maybe the next guy to get fired. And I was asked what uh, our team would do in the next 55 games to turn the season around. And I said, uh, while at Yankee Stadium playing in an interleague game, uh, or before an interleague game, that and we would go. 40 and 15 and as it turned out um after 54 games our team was 39 and 15 and we won that last game to go 40 and 15 and save my life and go to the playoffs and uh, save my job also yeah and then in 2000 they still said you had to go to the world series i mean these standards they were at the mets are crazy they you first you have to win 40 games and then they said you have to go to the world series to keep your job and you take the team to the world series and play one of the most epic i mean we talk about world series uh, that people remember I, I can't remember anybody in new york who doesn't remember the subway series between the yankees and the mets in 2000 uh, they were even in people who aren't around like two three years old are telling me about that series the whole roger clemens mike piazza it had series had everything yeah, it had star power. It had, uh, you know, interleague play started in 97. So we started playing the Yankees, uh, which was an un- unthought of thing uh, for many years during the season. And after playing them six times a year for, for those three years, we now got to play them the six times during the season and play them in the World Series. And, and not until probably this year uh, has the hope been to have another Subway series and, and hopefully we're going to see it. <laughs> and then the funny thing you said, it was a joke Well, you met Joe Torre at Yankee stadium and the fans were going crazy and, and you were like, isn't this great? And, and Joe Torre who realized that if, you know, the Yankees had lost to the Mets, that would have been, he, he didn't seem too happy about that time. No, he said it was the worst time in his life. Um, he, he, would rather have been doing anything but managing those games. You know, George Steinbrenner was his owner, and, um, you know, everything rested upon uh, the Yankees beating the Mets. And um, somehow they got the breaks and uh, played a little better and actually won the series in five games. It seemed like it was 12 games because every game was so close and uh, it's so exciting that uh, many people live on with that memory to, to this day. And I would be remiss if I did not mention in 2001 um, your work after 9-11 in terms of turning Shea Stadium into a, a relief area, all the work you did to help the volunteers, the times you went down to Ground Zero. Um, certainly, you, you and Tori, everyone, but the how sports united, and of course, the, the, the town, and, and you, know, you deserve so much thanks and gratitude for the work you did after 9-11. Yeah, thanks. I, you know, 10 days later after 
and baseball returned to New York. And uh, it, it was unthought of uh, for the first week after 9-11. The canceling the season was, was what many people thought. If the season wasn't canceled, at least the games in New York would be canceled. But somehow uh, George W. Bush, who is now the commander-in-chief, along with the commissioner of baseball and the owners, decided to resume the season. And right at the last minute, Atlanta decided that they would come from Atlanta up to New York to play what turned out to be an epic uh, game with a uh, game-winning home run hit by Mike Piazza and Liza Minnelli singing New York, New York, an event that most people never forget who were around the game at that time because you know, frowns were turned upside down and hope was uh, back in the hearts of, of all in, in New York and around the country after such a horrific attack on uh, September 11th, uh, 2001. And then we're talking to Bobby Valentine, who wrote Bob Valentine's Way. And then you, you touched at the end of the book, spent some time about your time going to Japan and coaching there now for another, you're making your second turn there and you ended up for the Chiba Lions winning the Japanese world series for the first time they've, they've ever had in a long, long time. And, but just the whole excitement about the fans and how you brought all the, everything we're seeing in America when you, they show the, you know, when you're playing away, the home state stadium, all the fans came and filled the stands and just the excitement of the, all the fans in Japan. That was what I felt got the sense from the book was that, you know, you really turned the American style enthusiasm into the Japanese fans. Well, it was a miraculous uh, situation and uh, a, a, a life's experience that uh, I'll, I'll never forget, obviously. Yeah, not only went there, but um, turned an organization after 33 years of losing into a winning organization and watching the fans uh, come alive every day uh, that, that we played until we finally won that championship. Uh, we actually won four championships that year in the minor leagues and we won the interleague championship and we won our division championship and we won our national championship. So it was really a cool situation that, um, you know, fans today uh, from Japan uh, marvel at. And um, I'm really happy I was part of it. And I didn't realize, you know, we're down here in, in, in South Florida, you almost became the manager of the Miami Marlins, uh, almost. I think in some ways you said you were and then were not, but it was a, it was a very close to becoming the manager at the Marlins after you were done coaching in Japan. Oh, yeah, there's many things in that book that people would be surprised to hear happen. But, yeah, I had a verbal agreement to um, manage the Marlins. Uh, matter of fact, my bags were parked, packed. I was ready to get on the private plane to uh, fly out of uh, New Jersey down to Miami and uh, get in uniform a couple days later. But, um, yeah, the the uh, stepson of the owner thought that I said something that I didn't say. He got upset with me on the phone, and we had a discussion that basically led to me not managing. So uh, it, it's kind of interesting the way the world turns. <laughs> Well, uh, Bobby, you've had one of the most amazing. I mean, that's why this book. I learned. I mean, I follow your career, and I'm reading this book, and I'm like, oh my god, I didn't know this. I didn't know this. I encourage everyone to buy the book Valentine's Way. And I guess just a general statement before we conclude is, you know, what do you think about baseball today in terms of 
the the lack of the strategy. I mean, I know you were very much into analytics before other people were. You, I liked your story where you said we need a satellite dish. No one was using satellite dishes; they were just using scouts. So you were very, you know, ahead of your game, ahead of the game per se. But how do you feel like it is now with the home runs, the lack of steals, those type of things? Well, I, I think it's all coming back. Actually, you know, they deadened the ball, so there's more action. I think that the thought. Um, that we now can legally bet on baseball um, is going to be a major part of the game moving forward. And in order to have real interest in, in the betting community, you have to have more action. It can't just be strikeouts and home runs. So I think there's a, there's a move to make sure that we do steal and bunt and hit and run and get rid of the shift so that um, more balls are in play. And uh, I think our game, is um, it, it's in the operating room, but there's a lot of wonderful surgeons that are going to bring it back to life and make it even a better product uh, going forward. Well, Bobby, I want to thank you again for coming on Iron Sports. I really appreciate it. I know down here in South Florida, you you know Port St. Lucie with the Mets and spring training. There's a tons of Mets fans, and uh, but you're really just baseball fans. If you're a baseball fan, this is a book to read. So thanks again for coming on Iron Sports. I appreciate it. 